Hello, welcome to another special COVID-19 episode of The Lancet Voice. I'm Gavin Cleaver. And I'm Jessamy Baganel. So we wanted to take a podcast to talk about the specific problems and challenges facing sub-Saharan Africa during this COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, this is a very broad brush approach, looking at so many different areas. Uh, but to tie together some general themes, we spoke with Professor Yap Baum of Medicine Sans Frontiers, who lives in Cameroon. And he's going to help us try and understand the specifics of the situation in sub-Saharan Africa. My name is uh, Professor Yap Boom too. I'm um, working for Epicentre, Epicentre being the research arm of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières or Dr. Without Borders. I'm actually based in Cameroon, where I'm originally from. I'm a biologist by, by training, an engineer actually initially, and also an epidemiologist. I've been working in different places of the, the continent, in um, Uganda, where we have our research center in Barara, but also in Guinea during the Ebola outbreak of 2014, 15, 16, and so on. And then also in Democratic Republic of Congo, still on Ebola. And currently I'm uh, in Cameroon working on the COVID response for the country, but also involved in what is happening in the continent of Africa. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. So perhaps we could start by just talking a little bit about the kind of unique considerations that uh, people around the world need to bear in mind when thinking specifically about how COVID-19 will affect sub-Saharan Africa. What is quite common for Africa is at some point, a lot of people, including Africans, were thinking that the COVID will not eat us for some reason, because it has really delayed uh, going from China to, to Europe and US. And later on came to Africa. So while it was supposed to be an opportunity for most of the country, and it is, to get ready in terms of preparedness, in terms of laboratory, in terms of procedures on how to prepare and respond to the COVID, but also it brings that special thing in most of, uh, of us, believing that either the temperature will kill the virus or that we are strong enough to resist to the virus. So when you combine those kind of perception, it makes more difficult the implementation of some of the measures that we have been trying to implement on how to respond to the outbreak. The other point that I, I can add is since it has started, we have far less death as compared to what uh, has been observed in Western countries. So which kind of uh, led people thinking or believing that there is something special that is happening in, in the continent, there is some resilience. We don't know exactly where it's coming from. There are many options, but uh, definitely we think that there's something that is protecting us. So around the world, we've seen a lot of um, attempts to tackle COVID-19, uh, including containment strategies like social distancing, uh, a track and trace. What's the response to containment being like in sub-Saharan Africa? That's a good question because sub-Saharan Africa, is there is nothing that is homogenous. You have country like Senegal, for example, that has, well, that's one of the first countries to actually put in place a lockdown and making sure that uh, people are protected put in place a good surveillance system. And even now they have extended the lockdown for two extra weeks 
actually for a month going up to June, while most of the other African countries are actually losing the lockdown. So the, the major measure that are still going on is the wearing of a mask, which is quite um, uh, systematic, at least in theory. In practice, uh, not so much people are wearing those masks, which is really a challenge. But apart from that, you have the social distancing as much as we can. Uh, when you imagine some, some houses where you have five, six, even more people living in one house, how can you really implement the social distancing at home? That's a big challenge. In the common place, they are trying, but the market are still full of people. Uh, some of them, few will wear a mask, other will not. So it's really difficult to implement those measures the way they are. They have been implemented in the West, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Some try, as I mentioned, a good example are Senegal, but most of the other countries actually struggling. Do you think um, some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, their experience with Ebola containment might kind of influence their approaches to this disease or maybe put them in a more advanced position? Well, definitely in a more advanced position in the sense that they have some system in place. They have some people who have been trained on how to look for a case, how to look for people who have been in contact. So there is kind of know-how. Uh, I'm talking about uh, DRC, I'm talking about Nigeria and, uh, and some of those countries. So that might be helpful. In the other hand, if I take a country like uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ebola have never hit the capital city of Kinshasa. It has been happening in some far remote province or region. So those people in those regions might be more aware of, uh, of Ebola, so not now knowing how to handle those uh, epidemic or pandemics or those viruses. But when you go back to the capital city where they have not really been heated, I don't think it makes a huge difference. I don't think. On the other hand, when you go back to West, West Africa, where you have uh, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, who have been affected by Ebola in uh, 2014, that's already five years ago. What is the actual memory from those countries as Ebola is concerned? You may, you may find some few of those, some people who were there before who can easily activate the system, but in the community, in the population, still you need to reinforce the same, same things, definitely. So what are some things that maybe that other countries can do to ensure sub-Saharan Africa kind of comes out the other side of this pandemic without major damage? I think research can be a game changer on what can work and what is, cannot work in Africa. I will just take a very simple ex example. In quite a number of, of countries, including Cameroon, Senegal, and so on, they are using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as a systematic treatment for people who are COVID positive. That is because of, of the result that, work, that came out from the Professor Haoul team in, in France. But um, we have a different population. Uh, the disease that how people have are uh, different. The way they will react to those drugs are also different. That's only one example. Most of the Western countries have been using uh, molecular tests, di diagnostic PCR, for example, to, to name them to be able to track the virus. 
can we really afford that? No, maybe we, we cannot. So maybe we should really find a different algorithm, including the, for example, the, the, the rapid test. We know that they are not perfect, definitely not, but we have to find, to research how we can combine them with clinic so that we can be able to screen the patient at the lower level of the community or the villages where PCR will not be implemented, it won't. So definitely a research with local researcher to finding homegrown solutions are actually according to me, some means that will help the sub-Saharan Africa to find its own way to get out of this pandemic. Maybe the thing I would like to highlight is uh, resilience. Uh, resilience is really one of the messages that we are get- getting from this uh, pandemic. As you may know, one big difference between Ebola and the COVID is that when we were having Ebola in our countries, we are having all the support coming from NGOs from Western countries in terms of money, in terms of uh, human resource, material equipment, and so on. So this time, the border are closed, so we cannot import the human resource, so we have to deal with people who are there. Secondly, also, we are not a priority, so the, the protective equipment will first go to Europe, to US, and then come to Africa, same for the diagnostic uh, kit. So it's also today a great opportunity for Africans to produce and use their local resource. And that is an important and interesting message that is coming out of this pandemic the African resilience. And you see people making masks in, in different places of, of the continent. Some people are even trying to produce reusable protection, protective equipment, because we can't wait to, for them to come from abroad. So I think, I hope, I think and I hope that after that, there will, we will put health as our just cause and invest more on our local production of human resource and all the material that can help us to ensure that no one is left behind. Uh, striking to hear sub-Saharan Africa's problems put so clearly there. And so many thanks to Yap for talking to us about it. We also spoke with Zoe Mullen, Editor-in-Chief of Atlantic Global Health, to tell us a bit more about the situation. I guess it's not a surprise to say that in terms of challenges, many of the countries in, uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa are low-income countries or at the very least middle-income countries with poorly resourced healthcare systems. And that's not just in terms of, of hospital beds and critical care capacity, but but human resources. So most countries in West Africa, for example, have less than five hospital beds and less than two doctors per 10,000 population. Uh, And if you compare that with Italy, say, which we all thought of as particularly overloaded in terms of its healthcare system, there are 34 beds and 41 doctors per 10,000 population there. So you can can immediately see the sort of the obvious challenges there. On the other hand, though, sub-Saharan Africa has a very different demographic profile to Italy and the rest of Europe. Africa as a continent has a a strikingly lower median population age. Uh, it's just 15 in Niger, for example, compared with Europe. Um, so it's 46 years is the median age in Italy. And of course, the evidence is pretty clear that COVID-19 is affecting older people much more seriously than younger people. Uh, 
there was an article in Lancet Infectious Diseases uh, a few weeks ago showing us that case fatality rates increase really steeply after about 60 years of age. So if your population contains relatively few people above that age bracket, then you know, you're likely to see fewer deaths. However, we also know that deaths from COVID-19 are more likely in those with underlying conditions. So non-communicable diseases such as hypertension and diabetes. And unfortunately, sub-Saharan Africa is fast catching up the rest of the world in terms of the burden of these conditions. Uh, there's also a large burden of HIV and TB, which could also be risk factors for a more severe disease course. So this combined with the reduced healthcare capacity suggests that um, you know, the consequences could be very serious indeed. So you mentioned then, of course, uh, about the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa. So of course, that gives them this kind of experience of dealing with transmissible disease that's very serious for population. How do you think that experience of dealing with Ebola might influence their containment strategies in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, a good question. I guess first, uh, it's probably wise to point out that, you know, these are two quite uh, different beasts. Ebola is a, a highly, highly fatal, yet relatively difficult to transmit um, hemorrhagic fever, whereas COVID-19 is less fatal, but much more easily transmissible, and it's a respiratory illness, obviously. But the, the basic tenets of isolation of cases, contact tracing, and different types of behaviour change to reduce transmission are certainly comparable. So I think in countries directly affected by the most recent um, Ebola outbreaks um, in West Africa, as you say, and, and more recently in the DRC, there's already a move to repurpose some of the Ebola isolation facilities so that they become COVID-19 isolation facilities and to uh, retrain some of the healthcare workers that were trained on, you know, donning PPE, dealing with isolated patients. Uh, so retraining them to now work on a, a new beast. I think countries are also much more switched on now regarding importation events. So illnesses that come in across the border. So, Many countries in Africa are now, they might require travel histories from people coming across borders, put quarantine in place. That's all come from the experience of Ebola. And also, I think testing facilities are also a lot more advanced than they would have been if Ebola had not happened. So again, there are these sort of hubs, diagnostic um, labs available from the Ebola era uh, that, again, could be sort of re purpose to use for COVID-19 with obviously with different reagents. I think also a lot of lessons have been learned about communication and community engagement. So some of the COVID-19 mitigation measures like lockdowns, physical distancing and regular hand washing are, are going to require the understanding and buy-in of ordinary people. And the way the need for behaviour change around the burial of Ebola victims, for example, the way this was initially managed was disastrous. And that is a lesson, I think, that was, that was, that was hard won. So this time around, I think communication will be, will be a lot better. And finally, I think, you know, now we have the Africa CDC, the Centre for Disease, Disease Control, which was established in 2016. And it's doing a great job of coordinating the response across the continent in collaboration with, with WHO and other CDCs from, from around the world. There are several, several aspects of the, the Ebola experience that can um, set countries up for, for dealing with this. 
Now, you talked, of course, uh, there about social distancing, and obviously it's notable how in high-income countries uh, it's been, you know, relatively easy for a lot of people to socially distance, to uh, keep, you know, keep themselves plugged away at home, so to speak. In sub-Saharan Africa, are there any particular challenges that when it comes to social distancing? Yeah, I mean, as I've mentioned, that some of the these requirements are going to be unfamiliar and unwelcome to people so first of all the communication has to be well thought out and context specific otherwise people will become suspicious and potentially angry uh, and certainly not keen to follow advice and I think in higher income countries despite the fact that you know as you say for most people it's relatively easy we what we have seen and we've also seen this recently in India is that these these requirements, these stay-at-home orders are affecting the disadvantaged the most. So if you're already on a continent that's relatively re- relatively disadvantaged, you know, that, that's one thing. But then there, within that, there will also be people who are more disadvantaged than others. So if you're living in an informal settlement, a refugee camp, or even, you know, just a tower block in the, in the middle of a big, a big city, that isn't going to be a lot of fun you're also less likely to have simple things like running water and soap to do things like hand washing. These are going to, this is not something that's um, going to be as straightforward as in a, in a higher income country. But in addition, I think, you know, even, even worse with the closing of schools and social gathering places, businesses, incomes will just dry up. The likelihood that the average sub-Saharan African could work in isolation at home is really small. And in fact, the, the UNDP is, put out an estimate that nearly half of all jobs in Africa could be lost. So that's, you know, that's a massive thing. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have issued emergency funding streams, but we published a comment pointing out that these have their drawbacks and they haven't really been put together with a long-term benefit to health systems in mind. So I don't think sub-Saharan Africa is particularly unique in some of these challenges, but the sheer scale of the African population means that you know, a lot of people are going to be hurting at the end of this. It sounds like it really, um, scale of the population really exacerbates the, those particular problems. So what are some things that other countries can do to ensure that sub-Saharan Africa comes out the other side of this pandemic without really major damage? I think in the short term, countries need to step up and fully fund the, the UN's COVID-19 Global Humanitarian Response Plan. So it's calling for $2 billion to fund things like testing materials, PPE for healthcare workers, medical equipment, but also things like like water and sanitation for food and and vaccination against other killer diseases which could be disrupted by the COVID-19 response. You know, this is is a really obvious thing, I think, that that countries uh, have a responsibility to think about. And another lesson from the Ebola outbreak was not to neglect the basic needs of people in the rush to sort of pour funding into disease-specific responses. Across the Lancet journals, we're already starting to see submissions, research papers on the indirect effects of COVID-19 on things like vaccination programs, um, maternal or newborn care, and on nutrition. So something like this humanitarian response plan, which covers things like basic needs, I think is is really, really important. You know, it's, it's been depressing, actually, to see that in what's indisputably a global crisis i mean what could possibly more be more of a global crisis than this nations have actually turned inwards you know the u.s president's defunding of who was the 
epitome of this, what possible long-term benefit there could be from finger pointing, hoarding, protectionism. It's really difficult to fathom. You know, countries become distrustful of one another. And that's the last thing you want in a pandemic. In the longer term, then, I think countries need to learn from each other, accept that global solidarity is the only way to manage what is likely to be actually quite a long-term flow. Really great to hear some context there. You've been listening to The Lancet Voice. Join us again soon. Mm-hmm.